Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Actually, today it's Fridays with Scientists. Today we have Dr. Dave Gosselin, Abby Schroeder, and Emma Kurtz. How are you guys doing this afternoon? Doing well. Thank you, Eric. Very good. Add a little bit of rain earlier. It's kind of nice to see that. We sure could use a bit, good bit more rain. Um, so just for uh, just to get started, uh, I'd like a little background on all three of you, uh, where you guys are from, uh, what's got you interested in the work you're doing, those sorts of things. Well, I'll uh, I'll jump in here. Um, I'm from uh, Minnesota originally. I've been in I've been here at UNL almost 35 fun-filled years. And um, I'm actually a geologist by training. I'm the current the director of the Environment and Sustainability Studies, as well as uh, serving as the co-chair of the Chancellor's Environment, Sustainability, and Resilience uh, Resilience Commission. And I've been the director of the program uh, since about since 2015. Abby, go ahead. I'm Abby Schroeder. I'm in my fourth year here at UNL. I'm double majoring in communication studies and environmental and sustainability studies. Um, I'm originally from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I got interested, I got involved in this um, whole project through Dave and the environmental and sustainability studies program. Um, my name is um, Emma Kurtz. I'm originally from outside of Chicago. Um, I'm a junior here at UNL. My major is in general management and then my minor is in environmental and sustainability studies. Um, I just accepted a position with Conservation Nebraska and I will be continuing to work on Project Energy Nebraska. So basically continuing the work from this summer. Okay. And how long have you uh, all, so you've been, you've been involved in this for a little while then? Yeah. Yeah, the project, this project energy, uh, Nebraska started in around 2021. And uh, we've, we've run it um, out of our environmental engagement in the community class. And then the past two summers, we've continued to work on through the summers in, in a very, in a, in a variety of kind of different formats, if you will. And this summer, uh, the summer of 2023, we we focus predominantly on uh, Norfolk, Nebraska, and some of their and some of their needs. Um, and I'll let Emma and Abby speak for themselves in terms of how they jumped into this whole thing. Um, yeah, so I had a class for the first time with Dave um, this past semester, and it was the environment, environmental engagement in the community, and I was working on Projects Energy Nebraska then, and then this internship opportunity opened up for this summer, and I showed interest, and yeah, here I am now. Yeah, kind of similar story for me. I was looking for some experience uh, specifically related to the environment and sustainability. And it sounded really intriguing um, and a little challenging. So I knew it would be a, a good fit. Yeah, it should be pointed out to that, uh, Eric, is that this is a, a collaborative project with um, uh, the ICLE, which is a international nonprofit that focuses on uh, sustainable communities 
local community sorts of things. And we've been working with them uh, since, like I said, 2021. Uh, the, one of the people that got engaged in that from ICLEI was uh, Tom Herod, who's a former graduate of the Environmental Studies Program from uh, 1997. And so uh, <laughs> he got... It's a long story, but anyways, that was that's where that connection came in. And then Conservation Nebraska is a local nonprofit, and Amanda Gangwish um, is a graduate of our program, and she's the one of their program managers, and wanted to uh, you know get in get engaged more with the environmental and natural resources side. We've also worked with um, rural, the Rural Prosperity Network. They we've worked with them in some terms of some leadership. Um, leadership training for our for our interns and also we've uh we've been uh, uh provided with some funding also by the nebraska center for energy sciences research and which is uh, uh if, what do you call it uh, funded by to a great extent by nppd and so in this summer's project we not only worked with norfolk but we also worked with uh worked with nppd and 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 abby did some survey work for them. And I think she may be continuing that on with her, uh, with her senior capstone uh, capstone course and looking at the electrical vehicle readiness out in rural, kind of in the rural areas where NPPD has their um, uh, operations. Yeah. That seems like that's probably very important. Uh, so Abby and Emma, just real quick question. Uh, have either one of you taken climate in crisis by chance? I took that class in the, I think it was spring of 2022. Okay, so and you had, you had Dr. Durr? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I taught it last spring. There's a reasonable chance I'll teach it again this next spring. As I said to Davis, I want to brag on your program a little bit. Uh, some of my best students in that class last semester were in your environmental studies program, which I guess now is environmental studies. It was environmental and sustainability studies, right? So that is know. correct. Yep. Yep. That's correct. We just, we just, the, the name officially changed as of this, as of this semester and we'll continue on in that name, I guess, for, <laughs> for the future anyway. However long somebody deems it to uh, stay, stay that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so Emma and Abby, I, I know you, know, you guys are part of what we probably call Gen Z. Um, if you, do you find that environmental sustainability or that those types of things are, is that a big passion amongst your age group? And have you all been very passionate about the environment since you were younger? Or is this something that you really kind of gravitated toward once you got into college? Um, personally, for me, I grew fond of this field just through traveling as a young child. And like my passion for the environment and conserving it grew from that. Um, I would say that amongst our generation, it's definitely become... I don't want to say like popular, but it's more common for people our age to care about the environment and to understand sure. the effects that, you know, we as humans have on it. Yeah, The, the concern is certainly I, f I find the concern is a lot more heightened for people under 30 than it is for people that are, say, over 60, 65. Not that they yes. don't care, but um, you will have to live with it longer than we do. Yeah, when I've had conversations about climate change or uncertain environmental futures, the people who are more concerned are definitely closer to my age group. And I feel like it's just more of a, it's like Emma said, like more popular. Um, and I feel like we've got a little bit more emphasis on it. Sure. I you think also, 
I think also, Eric, there's a there's a greater sense of urgency, I think, amongst the the, the younger generation than it made be for for us that might be in, in a little bit older, uh, a little bit older generation as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's what surveys show. And I, I just was I'm always just kind of interested with, with how people get passionate about what they're doing, because uh, I think it's great when people have a passion for what they're doing, uh, as long as it's geared towards something you know useful to society. <laughs> um so kind of getting into climate change, you know, one of the things that we do care about is how we manage our waste. And I know it's not something that we, but most of us think about on a regular basis, and a lot of us probably don't want to think about it at all. Uh, but I do find this as a, uh, was a pretty interesting project that you guys are working on up there in Norfolk. So uh, how did this get started? So, are you, well, okay, so the, the project that we worked on this summer was, again, helping working with Norfolk to kind of look at a more integrated approach to how they're mm -hmm. managing their waste and their energy. And again, uh, Norfolk has been involved with our Project Energy Nebraska since 2021. Steve Ramis, the, 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 uh, the city engineer, has been a, has been a very uh, uh, collaborative partner over the past, what, two and a half, uh, almost three years now. And um, this... Before, I guess in May, we were talking more about what we could do, you know, during the summertime. And he had been approached by some folks with regards to doing something with their waste, particularly looking at the business of using pyrolysis to, um, to, to create this stuff called biochar. Anyways, long story short, we, th we started thinking about, well, what could we do with the waste? What could we do with the, you know, this business of energy and how could we fit it all, fit it all together? And so that's that was kind of the beginning. And, um, when Emma and Abby, and we should also, uh, we should also note that we had another student involved, Jonah McDowell, who, uh, graduated in, um, May and is now at the, uh, university of Philadelphia pursuing his master's degree in, in, um, environmental studies. But the, um, so we basically just started having conversations. We went and visited Norfolk and their operations, and we started to kind of conceptualize how these things could be fit, uh, be fit together. And um, I know I learned a lot along the along the way. And um, you know, uh, Emma was Emma and, and Jonah were very much kind of in the the energy side of things. And then then NPPD came in, and they had this. We had some conversations with them in the context of engaging with the community more. And so um, Abby kind of took Abby took the lead on a, uh, a project to kind of get a better sense for, um, I guess, electrical vehicle readiness, if you will. But I guess the broader scope was kind of the importance of engaging with with stakeholders um, as you're developing outreach and community engagement programs is kind of how that fit in. And I don't know if that was at all coherent, but that kind of gives you where the, where, where we started. No, that's a very good explanation. Uh, and it seems like Norfolk has been very kind of forward thinking on how to manage their energy. Uh, they seem more forward thinking on like, aspects of climate change and maybe some other communities of, of a similar size in this part of the country. Um, and their, their mayor definitely seems to be very much, uh, uh, in a, you know, a forward thinking, innovative type of person. Uh, I haven't met him personally. His name is, a is it Josh Mahoney? Is that his name? Um, I'm not, 
I'm not sure the the right name the the last name is correct, but it's definitely definitely Josh. And we have met him. He was actually down here. Him and Steve came down and gave a presentation as part of the water um, uh, the the water um, seminar uh, the water seminar series on their creation of. Um, I guess uh, a kayaking whitewater kayaking in in um, in Norfolk, where they've they're basically kind of re-engineering about a about a mile long stretch in town to use their use the drop in elevation there to kind of create a place where they can where people can kayak. But they've also just opened a I think it's and Emma and Abby, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's something on the order of sixty to eighty acres. Of a solar of a solar array where they are basically putting energy into the into the system um, by contract with MPPD they can they can um, basically produce up to eight megawatts uh, of power through their uh, through their system uh, to help again offset the energy use in in Norfolk and they're looking to they're looking to expand and modify contracts and stuff related so that they can actually potentially expand their their solar uh, their solar array there in fact i think um, our our at project energy nebraska during the actual uh, last um, uh, last semester looked at uh, some of the fees did kind of a brief feasibility study of expanding their uh, solar array so that they could accommodate energy or so they could produce energy to run their wastewater wastewater treatment plant as well as their water treatment plants in in Norfolk, if you will. So in other words, almost have like uh, zero emissions going into the uh, running of those facilities. Yeah, and I guess the way the NPPD refers to that, it's, it's be what they call behind the, what is it, behind the, behind the uh, meter. Behind, behind the, the meter. meter. Yeah, so that the electricity is just going directly into their system and it's not going, it's not, if you will, using NPPD's infrastructure, I guess you could say. So they're not being charged for any of their power. They're getting it directly from their, from the the uh, solar array. Interesting. Um, so the EPA has a waste management hierarchy chart that I just uh, recently found. And the bottom of it is just treatment and disposal. Then it goes into energy recovery, recycling. At the very top is source reduction and reuse. Now, I'm going to assume that tradition, most traditional waste management systems have been toward the bottom of just more of the treatment and disposal. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Emma, you want to go ahead? Um, yes, that is definitely an accurate assessment. Most places um, are just disposing of their waste rather than using it for energy. Um, waste energy is becoming more popular. I don't exactly know the number that's how many facilities are within the United States, but it's becoming incre increasingly popular, but not as popular as we would probably like to see yet. It should be pointed out too, uh, Eric, that you know, in Europe, this sort these sorts of discussions have been going on a lot longer than they have been in in the in the U.S. Uh, Ames, Iowa, is kind of a model system that we've been looking at, and they've been they were the first waste to energy um, uh, system set up in the United States in 1975. 
And so they've been running a system where they take, where they recycle, where they recover materials, you know, metals and such things. Uh, and then they also, I think they recover organics uh, that they, I mean, you guys and Abby can correct me if I'm wrong, but they, I think that they do some things with regards to composting and also the development of um, food products for animals. And then, then they will take the rest of it in, or they'll take the, 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 the remaining waste, I believe, and then incinerate it. And then they produce, um, I guess, heat for steam and create electricity out of that, out of their situation. Um, there's a huge plant in Spokane, Washington, that does similar sorts of things, as well as in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, we found a, and the the what is it, the Isle White, uh, Emma, in um, in uh, the Great or the uh, in the United Kingdom. Thank you. In the United <laughs> Kingdom, where they're actually using, instead of incinerating and burning it, they're using a higher temperature sort of source of pyrolysis to create, uh, I guess, syngas, basically kind of a methane gas from their waste, and then they're producing electricity as well from it. So there, there's, there's numerous examples of this, of this going on, uh, not only in the, the U.S., but certainly on a global on a global basis. So it strikes me that there aren't a lot of examples of this. Is that partly because um, they're just, there's a huge barrier to adoption from a technological standpoint for some, pl some places? Um, or is this just more a lack of willpower? Well, I think that it may, maybe even more, it's, it's, it's a, can it, I would say it's somewhat of a convenience thing. So if you look at Europe, Europe does not have a lot of land area that isn't populated. So creating new landfills is a problem. Here in the middle part of the country, that's not so much of a problem because we have a lot more open, you know, open land space where this can, where, where that can occur. I mean, I think that that's one of the issues in terms of the technologies and stuff. Um, I mean, there's certainly challenges with regards to recycling because the the, the markets are uh, are quite variable mm -hmm. and, you know, to be able to make any money off of that. So for example, um, Oh, uh, Abby and, and Emma remind me the, the community out West that we talked to about their um, uh, recycling program. Oglala, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oglala has <laughs> got a, uh, a uh, they use a hub and spoke model to bring recycling materials into their, into their area. They, they do it very well, but the problem is, is that they have to do everything off of grants and the grants are one year sorts of things. It, it, it it's uh, again, it's more along the lines of how we're just kind of framing the waste, the waste issue. And again, the technology's there. People want things for cheap. They don't want to pay for things. You know, so it becomes an economic kind of an economic discussion um, as well. The interesting thing about Ames is that Ames is actually what is it a 2022 report that indicated that they actually had a um, you know they made a profit off of their waste energy system of something on of a couple hundred thousand dollars. So it's doable. 
if you're if you're doing it in an integrative and kind of innovative sort of way and thinking about the possibilities versus all the obstacles that can potentially get get in your way. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it, again, I'm I'm sure the the cost of just having a landfill in this part of the country probably is a lot cheaper than it would be, say, in Europe or a very densely populated part of the U.S. Uh, but I'm I'm wondering if there you know if the there was a cost structure or something like where you're just talking about at Ames where maybe you actually make money and then we actually reduce the property tax levy or something that might be an incentive to actually do more of this. Uh, so it, what I'm hearing though is that the technology is there. Uh, we just aren't really taking advantage of it in a lot of cases. Yeah. And, and one of the things, so for example, with re, just thinking about the recycling business and let's just talk about Oglala as an example, Oglala, you know, they accumulate a lot of waste, but then they have to truck it. You know, they have to truck it from Oglala to Omaha. Well, there's, you know, significant transportation costs that go along with it. And by the time they do that and they're getting paid, you know, five cents a pound for plastic, it turns out that they end up losing money on the deal up in Norfolk. And one of the reasons that they, they have to, they take Norfolk serves as a transfer station for waste from local communities. That waste then is taken to the, the Clarkson regional or the landfill near Clarkson, which is a regional landfill. And then they've got to pay it. They've got to pay for it to be dumped, you know, to be uh, deposited there. So you've got all of these costs. If you could just reduce the amount of waste. In fact, Emma did some calculations. If you reduce the amount of waste by 25%, you could save upwards of two to $300,000 with transportation costs and tipping fees. Just, just doing, just by reducing your, reducing waste, which could be done through recycling programs as well as, um, as well as uh, you know, way, uh, material recovery. Again, material recovery being things like metals and such that could be repurposed or re, uh, you know, recast. I guess you could say. So this would, this would be recovery for things that would already been probably dumped in the landfill, so to speak. Sure, like you know, metals, for example, not just aluminum per se, but mm -hmm. other metals that could be remelted down and re and reprocessed. Uh, for for other usage, you know, the, for example, tin uh, steel cans would be an example of something that could be used for other for other purposes. What's interesting about Norfolk is that they've got an industrial scale uh, recycling recycler of steel there, new core steel that uh, you know is already doing that on a fairly large on a large scale. So one of the thoughts might be. That you could, if you started creating some, if you will, small entrepreneurial operations where you could start creating materials such as uh, building materials. Uh, we see now what um, plastic types of uh, materials for decks, decking materials, create that locally and sell it locally. Maybe, you know, again, it's, it's kind of rethinking and reconfiguring how you, you think about the scale of an operation that that might come into play. Oh, absolutely. And that kind of ties into starting to manufacture more things locally. Um, and that certainly, I would certainly think that would reduce the uh, greenhouse gas footprint to some degree. Um, yes, ab absolutely. And then the other thing, too, is that what we advocated for um, 
for Norfolk was instead of using an incineration sort of an approach, if you will, burning it, using pyrolysis, which is a, a higher, let's just call it a higher temperature process by which you can, um, in essence, it's burning, but it's again, it's it's a slightly different so that you get a, somewhat of a closed a, a closed system. But out of that, you can create other products. And Emma, do you want to speak to the business of biochar and some of that? There's this product called biochar that can come out of this system. Yeah, so biochar is basically a very high carbon material. Um, in terms of Norfolk, Norfolk, if this plan is implemented, they would probably sell their biochar to local concrete producers. And biochar acts as an additive. So it would decrease the amount of concrete that company has to use, which, you know, decreases their cost, as well as making the concrete stronger. Um, biochar can also be sold to farmers and um, used for like land use. But because of the nature of the feedstock that would be going into the pyrolysis system, so like waste, wastewater sludge. Um, there are factors that could be dangerous if you use it in soil, if that makes sense. So if you just, mm -hmm. you know, we're putting like wood into the system, then that type of biochar could be used on land. But in terms of Norfolk, they would most likely sell it to concrete producers. Sure. And there's also well, the whole business of carbon sequestration that goes along with it and carbon markets and that kind of, and that, the neck acts was kind of the original, the originator of this whole concept of an integrated approach because um, uh, Norfolk was approached by a, a company that was kind of advocating for a pyrolysis system that could be used to create biochar and used for carbon sequestration. It can also be used for a variety, again, depending upon the feedstock and temperatures and such, you can produce methane gas out of it. You can also you you can also create activated carbon, which could actually you be used as part of water treatment. Um, so again, there's 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 options here again, depending upon on, on what directions that you want to that you want to go. Yeah. And just to add what um, you just talked about, Dave, the pyrolysis system. Um, so it produces a lot of heat, like what we've said, and that's referred to as syngas. And usually there's um, that syngas can be used to power the system itself. So like it almost becomes self-sustaining and you can use, you know, like 100% of that to self-sustain the system, or you can choose to use less and put it like um, behind the meter for Norfolk. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting aspect of pyrolysis that you don't have to put as much heat into the system once it um, begins to run. So it's just much more efficient in other words. Yeah, I get that would be a way to, yes, that'd be a way to characterize it. Now, none of these systems are perfect. I think that one of the questions that you, you know, there, there are pros and cons to all of these things. And it's, a, this is not, you know, burning waste, one might suggest that's not a good thing. But the one of the things about it is if that if you're using that material as a source of, of feedstock, if you will, for the system, you're not using petroleum products that you're extracting from the ground, which that in and of itself has. It's almost like you're reusing the petroleum because petroleum goes into mm -hmm. making plastics. And if you're using plastics to do some of the burning and stuff like that, you're not taking, if you will, pristine uh, petroleum products and starting from from that point. Right. It strikes me that we're 
keeping a lot more of the same things in the cycle, not having to get new. And this also seems like a way to reduce the overall footprint of carbon dioxide or carbon. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Yeah, you will reduce your carbon. You will reduce your, your carbon footprint to some some degree. Again, this is not the, you know, it's not the perfect solution, but it is a reduction mode. We really need to go into more of a reduction mode in terms of just what it is that we use in terms sure. of on a daily basis and putting it into the waste stream, I guess, is really. So the... I guess ultimately, if we were more um, mindful about what we were using, uh, if we increase recycling, reduce overall waste, all those things are all to the all of the good, right? I I think so. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Um, so, what do you? I guess in terms of what what do you ultimately hope this leads to? I mean, you you hope, I'm assuming that to some degree we you hope this is a a model for other towns in Nebraska and this region to to go off of. Yeah, and for, um, so. As Emma mentioned, she's going to work for Conservation Nebraska. And as part of our relationship with Conservation Nebraska, they've decided to do some more of their programming in the form of projects. And so that if you actually go to their website, you will see a link that says Project Energy Nebraska. And so the, Emma, one of Emma's chores, is my understanding, is, is going to be uh, looking to recruit some additional uh, towns to be involved in this. And I should also point out that we've been involved with Lincoln. We've been involved with South Sioux City as well as Grand Island. So it's not as though Norfolk is the only group, but they've been the most active and uh, in, in terms of our engagement uh, with them. We would like to work with certainly with other uh, with other communities in this same realm, whether, whether it's helping them with a plan or just looking at just various components of their of their uh, of their uh, waste and energy usage, I guess you could say. Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of curious what Lincoln's doing since we all live here currently. Well, I mean, Lincoln. So first of all, Lincoln has been very progressive in and of itself. I think it's one of the uh, I think it was the first to have a climate action plan within the state. Um, their mayor is very much uh uh, committed to implementing that climate action plan. Sure. Uh, the business they've got a whole pro they've got a whole program going on with regards to to biochar. They've got a very active um, you know recycling uh, recycling program going on. They uh, I think that they had I'm not sure how many tons of compost was it twelve thousand tons or something like that Emma that they had that they basically have sold and put back into the system that landscape services have been buying those sorts of things. So Norfolk, I uh, sorry, Lincoln has been very progressive. They also, you know, in terms of their sewage treatment plant, they've got, they, they produce methane out of that, that goes back into the, goes back into the system. So again, using the methane off of, you know, already used materials uh, and sewage, the sewage sludge predominantly is another, is another source um, Norfolk is also, we taught, we had a project again last semester where they were looking at, you know, the possibility of putting up a solar array to run their, um, uh, water treatment facility out on the east side, uh, the east side of town. They've been, um, 
they've been we've got you know Uribe waste looking at getting you know doing stuff with composting so Norfolk uh, sorry Lincoln has been doing a lot of a lot of things that and then the business of electric vehicles that's a whole nother arena got electric via we've got the the a co-op a collaborative i guess you could say with lincoln uh the city of lincoln lincoln public schools uh and unl as being part of that sort of group in terms of getting ready to to, to deal with that sort of sort of infrastructure yeah. and so i'm assuming there was probably an anticipation of having a very rapid shift toward electric vehicles in the next 10 years um california has more or less said that they're kind of banning the pr production of um, internal combustion engines for cars after, was it 2035? I, I don't know if that's still technically in place, but I know that was a goal of theirs. Um, yeah. And so we, we mentioned just like uh, about electric vehicle readiness earlier. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that one of the barriers to electric vehicles right now outside of urban areas that there just really aren't, isn't the infrastructure uh, for, I mean, or, more communities now starting to think a lot more about how they get um, charging stations in place, things like that. Abby, you want to take that? Yeah. So um, when we were looking at electric vehicle readiness specifically in like more rural areas, we found that the infrastructure is just not really there yet. It's, it doesn't support living in rural communities as easy as it is, might be here in um, Lincoln or in Omaha, but I think that's kind of something that's stopping people from thinking about buying EVs. And um, some of the responses we've got were just low interest in EV adoption, which kind of makes sense because we just aren't seeing that. But I think once EVs become more mainstream in more populated areas, that's going to transfer. And it's also interesting too, uh, Eric, is that NPPD has had an incentive program for, um, I guess, providing, uh, I guess, as it says, incentives for new homes as well as new multifamily homes to put in additional uh, infrastructure, i.e., uh, you know, 240 volt connections into the house into into new houses. Um, one of the things that Abby found out with her survey was the fact that um, a lot of people didn't even know about the incentive programs, didn't even know that they existed. And so that that's a little bit of a, again, that that was one of the reasons for doing the survey was to, to basically show that that was the, that that was the case. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And the other thing now that's NPPD. The other thing too, that goes along with this, and I think showed up in Abby's survey was the fact that if you look at surveys of rural areas, rural Nebraska, you know, the Yale uh, studies that they've had shown pretty much rural areas are not um, as concerned necessarily about climate change and some of the implications of that. And I think that that's also influencing, you know, the extent to which, these rural areas are going to just jump into this business of, of EVs. And then there's also some, some of the, or at least one response in Abby's uh, survey that said they just think EVs are a fad and that they're going to go away. But, you know, I don't think that that's <laughs> personally, I don't think that that's true. Not the way in which they've been selling. And no, the market is being, 
No, the the market's definitely trending in that direction. And it could be that, you know, we go in 10 years. Right now, we probably have, what, less than 5% of the vehicles in this country are, are EVs. Probably not even 2% in a lot of cases. In 10 years, it may well be 25 40%. And places that don't have the infrastructure for it are just going to continue probably to fall um, a little further behind the curve. Um, yeah, what you just said about the Yale survey, I mean, that, that makes sense. And that's kind of rural American in general, other than maybe parts of the Northeast. But uh, I, I do think that if you talk about it in terms of extreme weather, then I think their sensibilities heighten a little bit because they they are experiencing more extreme weather. And I think there's concern. I just don't think it's concerned in the same way that a lot that we think about it. I think they just they think about it in a, in a different context. Um, so. Well, I think that, that I think you're exactly right. It's a context, you know, it's a context thing in terms of how it's it's talked about. One of the things I have to I need to put a plug in for our uh, the Chancellor's Environment Sustainability and Resil- uh, Resilience Commission has a um, a lunch and learn series in the October. I think it's October 27th or whatever the that Friday is. Uh, we're having a um, uh, an, an electric uh presentations about electric vehicles and electrical vehicle uh, readiness sort of stuff from uh, Mark Skolnick from uh, Lincoln Electrical System will be uh, our featured featured presenter. And Mark gives a very nice talk hmm. about how it all kind of, what the trends are, if you will, in that arena. Does that group meet, uh, how often do they meet, Dave? We, uh, the, the lunch and learns are once a month. The first one is actually here on September 29th, and that's actually going to be featuring uh, Ted Hibbler. He's going to be talking about uh, indigenous indigenous uh, approaches to uh, indigenous people's uh, approaches to sustainability, which will be a very interesting uh, presentation. Well, absolutely, but again, I was just I, I keep thinking about what you were just talking about a little bit ago in terms of the incentive programs, and maybe it could just be that. There are people that will adopt certain technologies and things if it's if they had the financial incentives to do so, even if they aren't necessarily as concerned about climate change. Um, I think to some degree we just need to do a better job of talking about what we what we're already doing, what's already out there, what will benefit them. And I think things like electric vehicle adoption and heat pumps and those sorts of things will become a lot more common if the incentives are structured correctly. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I agree. I agree with that. Um, and right now, you know, again, this business of adoption, the people that are adopting are the, you know, are the people that are, if you will, the first adopters typically, and you're starting to move into that percentage of people that are a little bit more, are, are a little bit more comfortable, but we haven't reached that, you know, the big part of the bell curve, if you will, where people start doing it on a much larger, on a much larger scale. And so that's always sure. It'd be interesting if the curve is somewhat like the adoption of smartphones where the iPhone came out in 2007 and you saw some people with them for about two or three years. And all of a sudden it was like somewhere around 2011, 2012. It was like uh, most everybody had was I didn't get one until 2013. And I started thinking, it's like, you know, almost everybody else I know has one. It's like I finally just broke down and got one just because I got tired of uh, not being able to see pictures and videos of people who are trying to send me on my little flip phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So not, not, not to apples, apples comparison, but I mean, sometimes it got, sometimes technology gets adopted slowly and then very quickly. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a, I mean, there's, there's lots of work out there on adopt, you know, how new technologies and things are adopted. And this is one, of, we need to speed up the, the rate 
I guess, of adoption, so to yep. speak, if, if, if electric, I mean, not if electric vehicles are coming. And so, yep. I mean, you see the whole auto industry is having a real concern about that in terms of their contract talks with regards Absolutely. to, you know, who's going to make it and how those employers and or employees are going to be dealt with as, as we move into the future. Okay. Well, kind of coming up here on the end of it. So uh, Abby, Emma, Dave, any last comments that you'd like to share for the free end of the podcast? Um, I don't believe so. Abby. Um, no, not other than, um, I think it just really highlighted the value, our project really highlighted the value of um, including multiple stakeholders and trying to get um, as much input as you can. Yeah, we've been very fortunate to have some great collaborators and I mentioned them earlier in the, you know, earlier in the podcast that uh, certainly want to acknowledge uh, the Nebraska or ICLE, uh Conservation Nebraska, Rural Prosperity Network, Nebraska Public Power, uh, the Nebraska Center for Energy Sciences Research, and then, you know, of course, our own Environmental and Sustainability Studies Program and, and the work that a lot of students did before Emma and Abby and Jonah got engaged uh, in this as, as well. So it's been kind of a, a learning process for all of us, but I think that it was, it's been a, it's been a productive, a productive one. And, and I think that the community, the communities keep coming back and other, you know, other people involved with our program. So it must, it must be doing something for them. Otherwise they wouldn't return. No, you guys are absolutely doing something right. If they keep coming back, that's, that's the best sign of success you can have. I think is the people keep coming back and asking for more. Yeah. So Eric, we appreciate you having us though. We, it was nice. It was great to talk with our, about the project and hopefully others will hear it. And if yes. they're interested to have them contact us, we're having more than happy to talk to any other communities about, about the possibilities. Yep. Again, that's Dave Gosselin, Abby and Emma. Thanks very much. And uh, again, this is University of Nebraska Lincoln Environmental and Sustainability Program. If you want to take a look at it, you can get on their website, find out more information. All for now. Thanks, guys. Thank you.